in in preparing this, I um, had some interesting, I, I guess, experiences, and just it seemed like every day for about a week, I ran into these situations where I used my mouth in a way that offended somebody, and. I know for those of you who know me, you find that extraordinarily unlikely, but it did happen. And I even had a dream one night, which I don't normally have dreams, and I certainly never have dreams that I take divine meaning from. But I did that night, about a week ago. I woke up the next morning and I said, there's a common denominator between everything that's happened in my life and that dream. And I don't remember what the dream is or was. I have no idea what it was, but I woke up with a distinct impression that I have to be very careful with the way that I use my mouth. And, um, you know, Matt said that he's like a lion or can be like a lion. I don't know what I'm like, but I do know that sometimes my words um, can have a sharpness that I don't intend. Um, So I wanted to set the stage for everything that I'm going to say with this, and that's that I have the utmost respect for each of you sitting here. Uh, I've been in your shoes. I've fought through the incredible, overwhelming um, uh, uh, voices that come from every direction. Um, uh, the, the need to find an identity that means something can carry me through the rest of my life. Um, And I know that can be very, very challenging sometimes. And I want you to know that out of everything that I say, my heart here is is to come beside you and just encourage you. And in spite of what this slide says, um, I was on a call with a consultant a month or two back, and she used the word esoteric. And uh, I thought it was funny that I didn't know what it meant, and I had to go look it up. So some fact that nobody knows what it means, but it's the word that you use to describe people that only use words that other people don't know what they mean. It just There was a, a peculiar irony about that that struck me funny, and it still does. Uh, so the risk today and for the three sessions that you guys have been so gracious to me speak to you in, the risk is that there are some concepts and some things that I may say that may, that may strike you as esoteric. And my goal, my job, is to try to inspire you in such a way that the esoteric can become consumable, that it can mean something to you. And my hope is that uh, words like um, worldview or imago Dei will, will, um, you'll leave the weekend and you will find those words inspirational rather than esoteric. So... That's my goal. Um, who has heard of the word? Uh, hold on, I got to get the pronunciation right. Uh, pal- palimpsest. Anybody heard that word? Good, because I had never heard it either until I think yesterday. So, but this idea struck me as very interesting. Um, what a palimpsest is, is a recycled papyrus. Everybody knows papyrus was what, you know, the Bible was written on um, originally. Because it was so expensive, um, because it was so expensive, they would reuse it. So there was literally ways you could either wash it 
uh, if there were errors, like if you made a mistake while you were writing, you could either wash it or you could scrape it. Now, today what we can do with technology is we can take uh, a, a, a papyrus that was re... or papyri, I forget, can never remember which one's singular and which one's plural, but either way, you get the point. Um, we can take one that's and reuse it, or that has been reused in such a way, and we can apply acid or technology to see what was under it to begin with. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because in these movements, if you will, of the divine story that you see on the screen, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, in these movements we find the elements of a divine palimpsest, meaning God did something incredible, and Matt talked a little bit about that this morning. God did something incredible. He created a good world. He, six times he said, that's, ooh, that's good, that's good. And then he said, ooh, that's very good. And then something happened. It was the fall. And inside of the fall, this very good world that God made and the image of God that he put in you was but it wasn't removed. It was a, it was, it was a palimpsest. You see that? It, was, it wasn't removed. The, the image of God in you wasn't destroyed. It was still there. And then we have redemption. And where God came along to, to, to bring redemption, in, like to redeem the image of God. But even in redemption, even after redemption, we still find, what do we find? Underneath the story of redemption... We still find the fall, don't we? It's still under there. It's a, it's a palimpsest. It's, it's this, this story of God that he's layering, he's building layer upon layer. We have the fall, we, we, creation, fall, and then we have um, um, thank you, redemption, and then restoration. And even in, 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 uh, in restoration, what do we find? Even, even in heaven, we find the redeemed still thinking God that they're redeemed. We still have the fall underneath the... I'm sorry, we still have redemption underneath um, duration. So you're going to see this slide quite a few times. um, and And it's a story that I hope becomes very cemented into your mind over the next three days. I have three talks. The first one is... um. Uh, the first one is today, it's what do you know for sure? The second one is Imago Dei, which, if you don't know, is Latin for the image of God. And the third one is War of Ideas. And in this talk, I'm going to dive into the issue of homosexuality, which I'm sure is going to be just an incredibly invigorating conversation. Um, and, and I'm hoping that my, my plan is, is to cut my comments short on Saturday and open it up for some Q&A time and let, uh, let you guys bring some questions you have, maybe around homosexuality, maybe around some of the, 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 the extremely divisive issues that we have going on in culture, and maybe some of those, maybe you've brought some questions like that um, to, to, this, uh, to this week, and we can dive into it. Matt will have plenty of answers for that. And um, by the way, speaking of answers, Michael was up here earlier, and he said something about, I don't have... How did you put that? You said, I don't have all the answers. That's why I'm not speaking this week. And I was like, wait a second. That is not what he told me when he, when, when he so I, I was beginning to think that I came to the wrong place. Um, anyway, 
I don't have all the answers either. I just happen to like to read and I happen to like to think. And so, unfortunately, that makes it look like I know a lot when I get up here and, and talk, but I don't. I just know what other people have, you know, written. So, I, I very, very surface. I told these three sessions that I have, all I can do is try to fill up the ocean with an eyedropper. And I, I sincerely hope that, that what I can do for you is just to inspire you just a little bit to uh, maybe poke into some ideas or, ex- or do some exploration on your own. Um, let's see. So that's where we're going. What do you know for sure? Imago Day, War of Ideas, and some Q&A. By the way, on the Q&A session, I'm going to post my, my phone number on, on the screen, so you'll be able to text me, and I'll, I'll triage those, or you can, you can uh, deliver those verbally. Um, I just wanted you, I know sometimes there's questions, you're like, I, I don't even want to ask that, um, and, and I may not want to answer it, but I'm going to at least uh, try to make it as, as uh, accessible as I can. Um, as I was thinking about what thinking about what to share, I was hanging out with my dad a few few months back, and he took a phone call from somebody. And one of his, I guess, this small talk was, you know, he said, "Hey, what do you know for sure?" And I was like, "That is such an first of all, a interesting way to start a conversation." It just struck me as odd. But then I said, "Ooh, that's a good title for this talk I'm, I'm thinking about." So you can thank my dad uh, for that. Um, to to start out. Um, I, want to, I want to relay a parable from the 1800s German philosopher Friedrich, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Anybody familiar with him? Um, hands, um, let, so let me I, I summarize this parable. This is the parable of, of the madman. <clears throat> the madman lit a lantern early in the morning and ran around the marketplace crying out, Where is God? I'm looking for God. Many of those who did not believe in God were standing around in the marketplace. They laughed and said, has he been lost? Maybe he lost his way. He went to sleep. The madman jumped into their midst and cried, I'll tell you, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers, what was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned, has blessed. Who will wipe this blood from us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatest, the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods? Said Nietzsche. Silly to appear worthy of it. Now, what was he saying? To be clear, he wasn't decrying the loss of morality or the decline of church attendance or the rise of a new century of religious skepticism. In fact, he applauded every one of these things. Instead, what he he was ushering in was the age of postmodernism, a word that I'm sure you guys have probably heard at some point, oh, that's this postmodern world we live in. We're going to dive more into that today. Nietzsche was known as the father of postmodernism, and he astutely recognized that the intellectual elite of his day and the philosophers of his day had killed the idea of God 
yet the concept of morality had not died. No one recognized that while the underpinnings of God had been removed, all of the structure and machinery of morality remained present in the culture. Does that make sense? So uh, God was gone, but everything that God stood for remained. Um, As an illustration of that, who has heard the United States is a Christian nation? That's something we, you know, that's kind of, we're kind of, we're, 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 that's a, a common thought. God was killed in this culture long ago, yet much of the machinery of, of morality still remains. Now, decreasingly so, but still some rem, much remains. For, for example, cannibalism is not widely accepted in Western countries. And I'm grateful for that. Um, and and, and uh, um, um, infanticide is not widely accepted in Western countries. Now, that's changing, and we're going to talk about that. Um, I, I, I'm reminded of a story that I read maybe, I don't know, a year or so ago about a, a, a woman who had flown to another country and was riding a zip line. It was one of those ridiculously long zip lines over a ravine that you can only get by with in other countries. Um, where they're not as concerned about lawsuits. Well, it turns out maybe there's some advantages of being concerned about lawsuits because the zip line broke. And her words were, I was going out across this valley, and it felt like I was falling a lot faster than I should be. Um, and and the, 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 um, The message that Nietzsche had to his day is that you're falling and you don't know it. You don't know that the cable has been cut and you're falling. You're still still trying to hang on to something that doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, So Nietzsche recognized the zipline cable was gone and society was in free fall. And by the way, Nietzsche championed. The obliteration of all forms of morality. Uh, he championed the, uh, the 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 downfall, the death of God. He was he, he was not he was he, he wasn't uh, bemoaning that fact at all, but he rightly observed that without God, there can be no concepts, no concrete concepts of right and wrong. This was in the 1800s. I think I said that. So uh, the lines of morality disappear without God. And now, as Nietzsche said, God is dead. That opens up the door for us to become our own gods, right? You see that? So there's three things that I want to cement into your minds today. Three things. One is the increasing audacity of believing in any absolutes. The second is there is an imperative need for you to know the word of God and to be intellectually astute. Now, I don't mean you need to become the next philosopher, I just mean there is some stewardship of the mind that as Christian believers, we have, we cannot outsource loving God with our minds to our pastors. We can't do that. There may have been a day where you could do that and get by with it. That day has gone. We are called to love God with our minds. And the third thing I want to cement into your mind today is the incredible message of hope that you carry as a believer. The incredible message of hope. So 
increasing audacity of believing in any absolutes, stewardship of the mind, and incredible message of hope. So first, what is postmodernism? There are three seasons, three big seasons, in the common era. So since Christ, there's been the medieval era, medieval or pre-modern era, from about to about 1600. And then you have 1600 to 1900 being the modern era. And then late 1900s, we have the, the post-modern era. Now, the pre-modern and the modern eras were bridged by something that you've heard of as the Renaissance period. I'm not going to really talk about the Renaissance period, but uh, I want to give you some characteristics of those three eras. The pre-modern era assumed the existence of God, assumed the supernatural. Um, it was grounded in the idea that, revel- that there was revelation and that truth was something that could be known. And that is a very important concept to understand. Pre-modern was grounded in the idea that truth was something that could be known. Uh, There was a grand story to history. That history was progressing. It was linear. That it was moving towards something. That was pre-modern. With the rise of the modern era, a lot of that started shifting. And beginning with the Enlightenment, the church's authority was called into question. Uh, there was a general disillusionment with traditional education, with political and religious institution. And, and uh, uh, there was maybe a skepticism that was introduced. And it ushered in a re- an, an era of allegiance to human reasoning as the mechanism ensured a narrative of continual progress. So predominantly, the way that we use our minds, our intellect, our our, our Abilities as as creatures of of um, uh, um, of, of rationality of rational creatures, what, that was going to be the mechanism through which we were going to usher in this this uh, uh, the next era of history. Does that make sense? But there was there was there was rationality. There was it made sense. Um, and, and in this era, realized in, in medicine and technology and communication, and progress seemed to be. Inevitable. Humanity was unstoppable in the modern era. We were going to go somewhere. You, you feel that hope? We, we discovered so much. There was nothing that we couldn't do. The modern era can be summed up with these words from the book Understanding Your World. The view of modernism moved the, the determination of human nature from God to man. The result was radical individualization that continues to infect Western culture, self-made, self-sufficient, and self-defined. The, the poet William Ernest Henley, in his poem Invictus, sums up this mindset. It matters not, he says, how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That captures the era. We are going to usher in a utopia. Heaven on earth will be ushered in by our intellectual and scientific prowess. 
if you've been a student of history, you'll know what happened in the 20th century. What happened? What did we have? Two world wars. What else happened? We had a threat of global extermination from nuclear war. We had, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, dozens of failed experiments with Marxism and failed economies. We had multiple mass extermination attempts. Uh, I mentioned uh, uh, um, a nuclear war, uh, the threat of nuclear war. We had millions and millions and millions who lost their lives at the hand of dictators, of genocide, and preventable disease famine. That is what we ushered in. That is what we bring in with our scientific and our intellectual prowess. Thinkers and philosophers begin to scratch their heads. And they begin to call into question our assumptions about re- reality. And this is what ushered in the postmodern era in the late 1900s, beginning with roughly the 1960s. Now, the postmodern era, this, is, by the way, is where we're at today. We are postmodernist. Uh, this is both an, uh, an era of time and it's a worldview. It's a, and by the way, a worldview. Remember that slide I had up that said fall, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration? Every worldview tries to answer each one of those boxes. You, you take every worldview in, under the planet and you'll find an answer for what's wrong. Where did the world come from? What's wrong with the world? What's it going to take to fix it? And where are we going? Every worldview is going to try to answer one of those questions. The postmodern world is no, the postmodern worldview is no different. So the postmodern, postmodernism is both an era of time and it's a worldview, a lens, if you will, that we use to try to answer the questions about each of those boxes. So in the postmodern, in the postmodern, um, uh, in the postmodern era, That's, a, that's a, actually a thought. Let me just read this for a second. So in pre-modern, we, I mentioned earlier, there was a divine, a super, uh, an assumption of the supernatural. God is in control. In the modern era, we are in control. And we're going to create a better tomorrow. And it's going to be better for our children. In the postmodern era, nobody is in control. This sums up postmodernism. So in the, in the, in the postmodern era, any Meta narrative. Now, meta, a narrative is just, you know, you know, it's a story. A meta narrative is like what's above the story, like a, a bigger story, if that makes sense. Um, any, any, any meta narrative, uh, any, uh, any, uh, any bigger, any bigger explanation for the world is completely and utterly rejected in postmodernism. Uh, whether those meta narratives happen to be religious. They're all equally rejected. Instead of there being one big story through which humanity is progressing, instead, the postmodernist will say, there's just a bunch of little stories. There's your story and your story and my story and your story. And all of these stories 
they're all good. They're all equally valid. Your story is your story, and it's, all, and it's 100% legitimate for you. It doesn't matter how irrational your story may, may be to me. You saying something? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to I stole that idea from you. Um, uh, um, so there is no one true story that is applicable to everyone in this room, much less everyone throughout all of creation or all of time. Um, and some of these stories are conflicting. And that's okay in the postmodern world. It's okay that some stories are conflicting. In the book, Making Sense of Your World, he talks about postmodernism this way. He says, we are stuck in something that postmodernists call situatedness. Anybody ever heard that word, situatedness? You probably heard it. I'm sure you did on your YouTube videos. Uh, situatedness. It's just you're so you're so that you can't see my story, and it's impossible because of your situatedness to use the, what Michael was referencing. Uh, uh, you've all heard the story of the the blind man and the elephant, you, right? Anybody not heard the story of the blind man and the elephant? They okay. So these blind men went to see an elephant, and one of them grabbed the trunk, and he said, "Oh, it's like a rope," and another one grabbed the. Uh, uh, leg and said, oh, it's like a tree. And another one felt the skin and said, oh, it's like, I don't know, sandpaper. I don't know what he said. But the point is that each one of them experienced some small part of the elephant and realized and, and made an assumption about the entire elephant based on their situatedness. Um, so, uh, so going back to making sense of your world, we are stuck in our situatedness or our lived experiences. So the experiences that you have you have 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 um, uh, uh, have put you in a position where it makes it impossible for you to comment or make any determination about someone else's experiences. And this this stuff is hard to talk about because it doesn't make sense, and so it sounds ludicrous to hear myself saying it. But uh, there are no foundations, and I'm quoting from this book. There are no foundations that are tangent from which to build a certain and agreed upon body of knowledge. So. There's no platform to stand on. Um, there, there's, no, there's no rock. There's no real truth. Everything is just fluid and moving. Um, knowledge really comes down to your perspective. We never have facts. We only have interpretation. This is postmodernism. We never have facts. We never have interpretation. We, it's impossible because of our situatedness to realize that there's an elephant. To use the elephant analogy, we, it's a, it's, that's not po- in fact, postmodernists would even go a step further and say there is no elephant. There is, there is no story that could ever make sense for anyone because the, they've rejected the, the basic um, presupposition that truth is actually knowable. Truth and knowledge are linguistic in nature. This is very weird to, 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 it's very, it's hard to make sense of. Think of the idea of red. Uh, let's, let's use gray, my pants, all right? Think of the idea of gray. Now, when I said the word gray, certain things came to your mind. 
like kind of this mix of black and white, right? But does the word gray actually mean gray? What about the word gray means gray? Why couldn't the word gray be instead... Uh, does that make sense? So uh, there's nothing about words that necessarily make them mean anything. It's just what we, the meaning that we've assigned to them. And so postmodernists believe that because of that, because there's nothing in my words that mean that it has to, there's nothing about the color gray or the word gray that means that it would have to be the color of my pants. Uh, therefore, the word gray means nothing. Does that make sense? I mean, I shouldn't ask that question because it doesn't really, but... Um, um, but they believe that truth and knowledge are just linguistics. And um, they're not reflective of anything that is actually objectively knowable. Now, stay with me here. I'm, I'm going to land this plane somewhere sometime. Um, we're going to get, get somewhere. But um, uh, So there are absolutely no absolute truths. Now, did you hear what I just said? That is the one absolute in postmodernism is that there are no absolutes. Who's heard the term deconstructionism? Um, this is a gift of postmodernity. The, uh, uh, um, uh, deconstructionism is the idea that words don't have meaning, and so therefore, how can we really know what anything means, and how can truth really ever be communicated and, and especially from one generation to another, you know, and I mean, if we're going to try to communicate truth from ancient civilizations, I mean, words can't even carry meaning today, much less the Bible carry truth or any other thing carry truth. So deconstructionism is a gift of postmodernity. The idea that texts or mathematics or scientific equations or theories of physics can be broken down and reconstructed and reconstructed as best suit the consumer. That is deconstructionism. Everything is relative. There's no guarantee that when you say anything, I will hear what you mean. Truth is nothing that can be known, and it most likely doesn't exist. All ideas in this worldview, all ideas are reduced to social constructs. And these social constructs, Class, by the race, by the gender, and the ethnicity that you find yourself in, i.e. your situatedness. There is no better in the postmodern worldview. There's no better. There's no moving a society from any, in any linear fashion at all. There's just a persistent and infinite class struggle of the oppressed and the oppressor trading places. There's no better, there's no progress, there's no achievement. These are leftovers from, an ide- from a world that actually had meaning. There is nothing that's worth debating in the postmodern world. Why should I debate anything you say if there's no truth? Because whatever I say could be 100% true for me, and there's no way for you to object to it because of your situatedness. You see that? And that's exactly the experience that um, many people are having on college campuses today. 
in a few generations ago, there would be robust debate. And now there's just a general acceptance, even of ideas that most of the room doesn't agree with, because there's absolutely no reason to ever debate it. Um, Nothing is worth debating about. Nothing is worth fighting for. The way that your tribal group has experienced truth is your experience, and you are entitled to it. But it means nothing to anybody else. It's impossible and overstate the extent to which post-modernity has impacted you. Both as an era and as a worldview. It has changed the world. It's changed education. It's changed art. It's changed law. It's changed our legal system. What do you teach? What do you celebrate? What do you legislate in a world that has no meaning? That has no objective truth. We're hurtling through space and there's no one who can help, either man or God. The only thing left is for us to legislate mutual respect for each other's lived experiences. That's the only thing left. Whatever they decide is good and right and true as a result. Is there a word that comes to your mind when I said that? How about the word tolerance? Does that come to your mind? It's the only thing left. Now, ask yourself, is that what we're actually seeing in the world today? And if you spend any time, no, that is absolutely what we're seeing in the world today. Tolerance has become the ultimate moral mandate of our day. Tolerance. Now, these ideas, I think I forgot to run my slide. Uh, Hold on one second. Um, these ideas are obviously not something that we explore every day in our you know, little 365-day devotional, right? Um, but, so I get that they're complicated, but I believe that these ideas are things that we need to understand. We need to understand um, the, 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 the story that we're living in. Does that make sense? We need to understand where we're at in this. Um, it helps us to understand our world better and understand how to think and how to face the task that we have before us. The task of influencing culture, the task to have uh, churches that affirm, and to, the task to consistently defend our faith. The reality is that culture tends to influence us instead of we influencing culture. I'm incredibly impressed as I read and study the way that postmodernism has developed over hundreds of years. Um, I'm, it, it's impressive to me 
the long, long view that many of these thinkers had, the ability to, to put forward a worldview that was so um, countercultural even in their time, and uh, knowing that, for instance, even Nietzsche, uh, knowing that most of his, his, his peers would reject things that he was saying, but, but put these, these very countercultural things forward. Um, and yet today we're seeing the fruit of what these philosophers and thinkers, the, 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 the seeds that they planted hundreds of years ago. So it's impossible to overstate the significance of what has, hap- what has happened um, with the rise of postmodernism. In fact, it's common in, in Christian circles, at least, to hear people bemoaning the loss of values, the breakdown of revolution, whatever. I'm sure you, we've, we've sat around and we've heard all of this, right? But what is missed in these you know, moments of, of complaining is the fact that the way that culture is uh, um, um, exhibiting itself right now is 100% consent with the worldview that is held by culture. Um, We have lost the foundation on which to stand. We've lost the foundation on which to stand to assess anything, to assess art, to to assess um, music or philosophy or science. We've lost it all as a culture thanks to postmodernism. And if we're going to replace it, it's not enough just to, if, if we're going to get it back, it's not enough just to complain about, uh, you know, a, 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 an issue of today. What we have to do instead is address the worldview that's behind it. Um, I asked recently a fine Christian young man if he had a Christian worldview. And he, he was a, responded in the affirmative. And I then asked him if most of the podcasts that he listens to or the books that he reads or the movies that he watches um, are from a Christian perspective or if they were secular. And he responded secular. I, I, I would challenge anyone who would respond in that way that most likely your worldview by secularism and postmodernism than it is by your faith. So as a Christian, listen to this, you are absolutely going to be discipled. Even those of you who say, I've never been discipled, you are going to be discipled. And you're either going to be discipled by Christ or you're going to be discipled by culture. Right, Jamin? You've got to choose. You're either going to be discipled by one of those two. Someone is going to educate you. And you have the moral agency to decide who. Now, there's a lovely pair of sunglasses presently. Um, um, What do you think those sunglasses represent? Worldview. Thank you. Those sunglasses represent your worldview. Now, depending on the shade of glasses that you put on, change the shade of what you saw on the other side, to state the obvious. Um, world to philosophers to process in their ivory towers. Is there anyone here that thinks you don't have a worldview? 
see if there's anybody brave enough to put up your hand. We all have worldviews. Even if you think you don't, you still have one. Um, uh, every single person has a worldview. And the issue is that most of our worldviews have not been formed by what we've taught ourselves, but simply what we've absorbed or what we've caught from the environments that we find ourselves in. Which means some of your worldview is probably spot on, depending on the environment you were in. But other aspects of your worldview may be far off. So what do you know for sure? In the overview, in this overview of postmodernism, what we've seen is this basic idea that there is uh, an increasing absurdity of believing in any absolutes. In uh, the the play The Rock by T.S. Eliot, he said this, this phrase, he said, Where is that we have lost in living? Where's the wisdom that we lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge that we lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us further from God and nearer to the dust. And we find and that, that captivated me because I find even inside of my faith, and I'm sure you guys have experienced the same, that there is an increasing tension in, in reconciling this very ancient faith that we hold dear and real and precious and a world that says there is no truth. There are no absolutes. And somehow we're kind of stuck in the middle trying to reconcile these irreconcilable positions. You guys ever feel that tension? Um, The Bible, as I said earlier, the Bible is telling a story, a story of creation, a story of a fall, what's wrong with the world, a story of redemption, uh, what's it take to fix it, or how has it been fixed, and a story of restoration, how will what's wrong be made right. And there is an imperative need today for Christians to know the Word of God, to really to, to know it, and to let it, let it change your heart. We, we, we live in such an instantaneous world. And I know you've that bemoaned all your life by now. Um, but I'm going to bemoan it one more time. To things that take longer than 30 seconds. And we have to push back that rejection a bit. And apply ourselves to things that we will apply ourselves to for the rest of our life. And resign ourselves to the fact that my pursuit of truth is something that will remain with me until the day that you guys put me out under the, the, the ground out there. Right? And that's okay. Um, there is an imperative need, as I said earlier, uh, uh, to, to know the truth, um, uh, to be intellectually astute, to be led by the Spirit of God and how we apply this ancient faith to this postmodern world. And... We can't outsource that to our pastors. That is your job. It's your job. So what is the rock on which you stand? And, it is a, and is it, in fact, a rock? Or is it the hull of a sinking ship? 
be good to know. Uh, <clears throat> in Romans, Romans 1, I'm going to talk about this more Saturday. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man uh, and birds and animals and creeping things. I'm going to move faster because I just realized what time it is. Um, so um, there's a ton of scripture. All scriptures breathed out by, by God. It's profitable for teaching. Um, there's a time coming when people won't endure sound teaching. But with itching ears, they'll accumulate themselves teachings to suit their own passion. Um, Paul says we've got to destroy arguments and opinions that, that's raised against the knowledge of God. We have to take every thought captive. Um, uh, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all, and all your strength. We have a calling to be active students of scriptures and to be stewards of our inner man, to be stewards of our inner man. We are the only created beings without instincts. Now, okay, you might argue that a bit. Okay, maybe we have a few, but we don't have many. Um, and that, that is very interesting to me. Instead, what we're left with is something we call free will. Uh, we have consciousness. We have self-awareness. And through that, we can learn by experience and by truth. And, and we, become, we, we, we become what we learn. We, we, uh, we, we live the life on the, 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 the operating systems that we program in ourselves. Does that make sense? We become trained by what, by what we are entertained. We become trained by what we are entertained. And if you become what you eat and you consume a diet of potato chips, there's a certain body image that you can most likely expect to achieve. Do we all agree on that? We absorb our basic operating systems from the, from the environments that, w- that we put ourselves in. So my question to you is what worldview are you catching? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. What will you harvest if what you plant is what you have consumed? What will you harvest if what you plant is what you have consumed. What if you reap your browsing habits? If your browsing habits, your Instagram feed, and your Facebook feed, and the news stories that you digest, if those things are all the seeds that you're planting, what are you going to reap? The prevailing worldview that permeates media and entertainment is not one that's going to cause you to wake up in 10 years and find your Jesus. It's not going to be one that causes you in 10 years to find yourself with a more rich and more orthodox faith. 5.4 hours of the average American's life is spent on their phone every day. That is a crazy statistic, but it gets crazier. Millennials spend 12 hours on average on their phone. I don't even know how that's possible. So you guys have to explain that to me. Um, your basis for truth will determine everything about you. It's going to determine what you believe is possible or not. It's going to determine whether you treat something as bondage or whether you treat it as sickness. It's going to determine if you have hope when everyone else around you says there is none. 
it's going to give you courage in the face of overwhelming fear. What you believe is ultimately true in the world will change almost everything about you. It will determine what you decide is good and right and beautiful in the world. Is money the highest good? Or is sacrifice the highest good? And how will you know the difference? The American Bible Society survey does a survey they call State of the Bible. They do this every year. And the 2022 survey, for the first time ever, we saw this. Bible dropped 11% in 2022. Now, I need you to know something. The American Bible Society defines a Bible user as someone who picks up their Bible and who, who uses their Bible. Three to four times every, not day, not week, not month, every year. So, pretty low bar. Bible users dropped by 11% last year. At the same time, the exact same survey indicated that the reason that most people fail to engage with their Bible is why. Anybody want to guess? Even at this low bar of three to four times a year, most people say they don't have the time. There is a bitter irony in the fact that we have 12 hours to spend on this thing every day, but we can't spend three to pick up a Bible three as a society. Listen, it's not an accident. It's because of the worldview that has been ingrained in people. Why would I pick up a Bible if the Bible has nothing to say about my situatedness? The Bible can't relate to me. It doesn't know who I am. Why should I bother to explore what God says about me if there is no truth? Postmodern thinking isn't just in culture way out there. Postmodern thinking sneaks its way into the, the cogs of our own mind. For instance, how many have heard the phrase, just be yourself? Boom. All of us. Who thinks that's a product of postmodernism? Absolutely is. Just be yourself. Be who you are. Now, there's no mistake in encouraging an individual not to be pressured into a life of performance. That's, that's, that's maybe, there's some truth there. Um, yet, um, uh, the, yet to, to, often we don't know in, when to use the phrase, just be yourself, in a postmodern kind of way, or in a scriptural kind of way, which is telling people, oh, you're made in the image of God, and it's okay for you to live that out in the way that, 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 that uh, um, aligns with your calling in life. But the, so we can use the same words to apply to vastly different outcomes, and sometimes we don't know the difference. What about, what about this one? What's wrong for you might not be wrong for her. We've all heard that phrase. And again, there's truth in that phrase. But it's also a phrase 
that comes out of postmodernism in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a phrase that postmodernists will use all over the place. There's no truth. What's right for her is not right for, wrong for her. Um, you are loved. That's, a, that's maybe not as much postmodernism, but it assumes that we can mistake this universal human dignity as a requirement to forego moral assessment of any human action. So again, nothing wrong with, wrong with the phrase, you are loved. Now, I should spend a whole lot more time on explaining exactly what I mean. But it's important to evaluate what we're actually saying. Is your value as a human being, um, because of your value of a hu- as a human being, doesn't mean that there's no moral consequence to any action that you take. Um, as basic Bible literacy has plummeted, people increasingly know, only know, a Christian worldview absorbed from other sources, from pop culture, from entertainment. Uh, uh, I'm impressed, and not, and maybe in a bad way, but I watch a movie or something, and inevitably, you guys tell me if you've experienced this, inevitably, in secular entertainment, the villain or one of the villains is like this pastor guy or this guy that's kind of carrying a Bible around. You guys notice that? It's so often, and it's just, gets under my skin every time. But why? Because pop culture is communicating a worldview. And communicating a worldview that these Christians, with their absolute truth, cannot be trusted. <clears throat> In reality, it is because, this is very important, it is because Christian thinkers and scientists believed that there was order in the material universe. That Many scientific discoveries were made at all. Men like Sir Isaac Newton saw themselves as thinking God's thoughts after him. We serve a relational, knowable God. He has revealed truth about himself. He has revealed truth about his world that he made. He's revealed truth about us. And the Bible tells a grand story, modernism, a postmodern narrative that there is no order. The Bible story is full of order. <clears throat> we have incredible purpose. We have incredible identity. And yet we do find that something broken. And we know this intuitively. Um, yet even inside of that, we're not abandoned. He has brought redemption. We are invited and compelled to step into the brokenness that at times engulfs us and bring a message of dignity and a message of hope. Uh, the Milan Cathedral, has anybody ever seen this? Anybody ever seen this building in Italy? This thing took 579 years to build. That, that is truly impressive to me. That's about as long as that uh, interstate bridge in Statesville is taken. But anyway, uh, um, God plays a long, long game. The prayers that you pray today may not be answered in your lifetime. And are you okay with that? Conversely, the consequences of your actions and your ideas and your worldview may still be impacting people 200 years from now. In a direction. 
your worldview will largely depend, I should say, the accuracy of your worldview or the rightness of it is largely going to depend on your willingness to roll up your sleeves and do some work. Are you willing to engage? Most people falsely conclude that that redemption box is the end of the story. They think that's it. I accepted him. My work on earth is done. And that if God wants them to go further as a disciple, he's going to somehow lead them to that conclusion. And what I hope I have persuaded you today is that it is time for Christians everywhere to actively engage their faith. Not just passively wait for culture to just shove you around and for you to wake up one day reeling and wondering what in the world you believe. Don't wait for that. There is a tsunami of hopelessness that is coming to this generation. The full impacts, as Nietzsche said, have not yet been felt. God is dead in culture, and people don't know it. We, have, we still have the machinery of morality. The social imagination still engages a lot of Judeo-Christian concepts. Uh, recently, there's there have been multiple uh, films recently that have been released that have glorified uh, cannibalism. Is that an accident? No. What's wrong with cannibalism? If you are a postmodern. Your children, your co-workers, your neighbors, your employees need the hope that you carry to a world that has no idea how to respond to where did I come from? What am I here for? Where am I going? What's my purpose on earth? We'll talk about that more tomorrow. Uh, last, last thing I just want to point out, on that note, the American Bible Society also, this is fascinating to me, uh, they asked this question. Are you curious to know more about who Jesus Christ is? Are you curious about what the Bible says? Nearly two-thirds of Bible disengaged people are curious, which is a substantial rise from the, from the prior year. I think that is fascinating. We have a growing trend of, of people, Bible users falling and a trend of curiosity growing. Are you prepared to meet? And that is where I will leave it for today.